Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Stonegate Horror by Ian Gordon The following correspondence was mailed to one Gary Cook of Cook's Books, Wigtown, in the late spring of 2018. Dear Gary, you'll be pleased to hear that the mission was a success. I suppose that's an overly dramatic way to put it, but it's a true statement nonetheless. I have the object in my possession, and will be happy to receive you at your earliest convenience. But, if you don't mind me saying so, I hope you won't beat about the bush, if the significance you've attached to the item is indeed half as prodigious as you've intimated. I'd rather have it off my hands post-haste, if you catch my meaning. Allow me to bring you up to speed regarding the particulars of its acquisition. You'll forgive me, I'm sure, for rambling. You know, I can't resist the opportunity to spin a yarn. So, there I was, just two days ago, I might add, sitting in Della Vega's tea-room on Castlegate, my head in the press, when a familiar face wanders in and orders herself a cup of tea— I believe you're familiar with Ellen Moore, the young lady involved with that uh, terrible business in the hills a few years ago. Well, we bump into each other fairly regularly at Della Vegas, and have become good friends. She's a student, you know, bioarchaeology, as fate would have it, but I digress. Spotting me, she pulled up a chair, and the two of us enjoyed a brief catch-up, before, inevitably, the perceptive young lady saw through my transparent attempts to conceal the fact that the afternoon ahead was to be anything but a regular day out in the city. She asked what I was up to, and, being incapable of lying to Ellen, I told her, omitting, of course, the true object of my visit to Thirty-Five Stonegate. Naturally, Ellen laughed when I stated that I'd booked a spot on a ghost tour of the property in question. "'What are you really up to?' she asked, in response to which— I held up my hands defensively, shaking my head. But that wasn't to be the end of it. There and then, Ellen pledged her company. I'm going with you, she stated. You'll need backup in there, Peter. I'm not sure you can handle the jump scares heading your way. And that there was the first crimp in the plan. It goes without saying that I was reluctant to have her tag along with me, but there's something indomitable about Ellen— she senses adventure, chases after it. I knew from the way she studied me with her big round eyes that she was on to me. She wanted in on the journey, and I hadn't the heart to deny her. And so, finishing our tea, mine being a respectable organic Darjeeling exclusive to Della Vegas, I politely accepted Ellen's offer of companionship, and off we went in the direction of Stonegate. I must put in at this juncture— that it was necessary to collect additional supplies along the way, each item of which served to provide Ellen with tantalizing clues as to the true nature of my objective. It was a fine afternoon by all accounts, clear skies, temperate, sightseers were out in full fluster, opting for a more surreptitious route, which, admittedly, is no mean feat in the city of York. We clung to the alleys and the snickleways, avoiding the larger crowd clusters, finally emerging on Stonegate by way of Coffee Yard. 
One approaching 35 Stonegate will observe a rather grand frontage. As I'm sure you're aware, Gary, it's a Grade two listed building harking back to the 15th century. It is, also, rumoured to be haunted, hence the ghost tour. Rather fortuitous, really. Had the ghost tour not been an option, I'd have been forced to seek other, less conventional means by which to gain access to my ultimate destination. Upon arrival, Ellen purchased a ticket from a rather awkward-looking young man, who seemed to be serving as both ticketer and doorman. We were a good fifteen minutes early, and so, per Ellen's suggestion, we decided to pass the time by surveying the window display of a curious medieval alehouse opposite. I tell you, Gary, if it had been any other day, I might have been tempted to sample a tipple or two. The tour commenced at one thirty p.m., at which time Ellen and I reconvened with the awkward doorman, and merged with a group of excited-looking tourists. Needless to say, owing to my choice of attire, no doubt, several of them mistook me for the tour guide, but, fortunately, Ellen saved the day by asserting that I was, in fact, just another vacationer. The actual tour guide, an elderly chap by the name of Smith, quite the character, if his contentious choice of words was anything to go by, eagerly conducted us into the heart of Thirty-Five Stonegate. At the end of a long, narrow passageway, I observed a beautiful stained-glass window, beneath which was etched, Knowledge is now no more a fountain sealed, from Tennyson's The Princess. How pertinent! But I'm sure you've no interest in the interior of an old, haunted house, Gary. As Smith prattled on about the house's spectral occupants, a tall man in a black hat and a furtive, balding monk, I spied a chance to vamoose. Ellen anticipated this action, and, with a movement wonderfully synchronized, the two of us slipped away from the group, and passed through a pair of heavy velvet curtains, which, as luck would have it, concealed an entrance to the cellars. You see, the time-worn blueprints, as provided by our mutual contact, showed a number of potential entrances to the catacombs beneath the city. The minster vaults provide the most obvious means of access— but they were quickly eliminated due to the sizable extent of the site. There's an old tunnel said to run parallel with the shambles, but I decided that entering the sewers by means of a manhole located in the busiest part of the city was simply out of the question. No, the curious trapdoor situated in the cellars belonging to Thirty-Five Stonegate was to be, by far, the most logical starting point. This, as I've already stated, owing largely to the convenience of a public ghost tour in operation above it, seven days a week. So now you should have a pretty accurate view of the scene, Gary, myself and Ellen, descending into the basement of Thirty-Five Stonegate, the absent-minded Smith continuing his tour with, hopefully, the belief that he'd simply lost two attendees to boredom, if, in fact, he'd noticed our desertion at all. Reaching into my satchel, I withdrew my trusty torch, and proceeded, with Ellen at my rear, into the darkness below. In muted tones, Ellen whispered something to the effect of, I knew you were up to something, but refrained from asking precisely what that something was. She's a brave lady, that one. After all we'd been through together that strange winter, I was still uncertain as to whether I should allow her to accompany me. And so, as we reached the bottom of the stone staircase, coming face to face with a number of 
anonymous-looking corridors, I decided to bring her up to speed, to give her an opportunity to leave well before any unseen dangers might present themselves. But I'm sure you've guessed it already, Gary. Ellen outright refused to abandon me. I was supposed to be meeting friends for a late lunch, she whispered, but this beats the hell out of that. That's Ellen for you. Anyway. I briefly consulted the notes I'd prepared in advance, written in phosphorescent ink, I might add, and saw that the trapdoor in question was to be found in a small storage room along the corridor to our immediate right. We traipsed along the passageway, mindful of the sound of our tread in the dust beneath our feet, until we reached the room. A stubborn door stalled our progress temporarily, an obstacle quickly surmounted by the quick thinking of my sidekick. She slid a slender hand through a hole in the door, and fumbled with a catch on the opposite side. This was the first indication that I was on the right track. The door was locked from the other side, suggesting that whoever had last visited that cramped space had exited via other means. And in we crept, torch held aloft. The room itself was insignificant, devoid of contents of any kind. No windows, no other doors. According to my notes, that which I sought would be concealed beneath a stone slab. In fact, the cellar floor consisted entirely of large stone slabs, which, I don't mind admitting, resulted in an exhausting game of trial and error, which finally paid off when, in the northeast corner of the room, we uncovered an ugly iron trapdoor. The slab concealing the hatch was a third the thickness of the other slabs, allowing, seemingly, one with suitable strength to pull the trapdoor closed behind them, with the stone atop it. In the gloom of the basement, where cobwebs danced before us with every exhalation, Ellen and I shared a glance under the light of the torch. The iron hatch had instilled a feeling in both of us, a sensation as of history repeating itself, déjà vu, you might call it. Unlike the stubborn door to the chamber, the trap-door yielded with little effort. I pulled it upwards, resting the rusted metal against the propped-up slab. A black aperture yawned before us, and with it the breath of buried centuries arose, pervading our nostrils. In addition to the face mask I'd packed for the journey, I withdrew the one I'd purchased for Ellen and handed it to her. These simple garments were the type worn by spelunkers to prevent the inhalation of excess dust. Out came the LED head torches, too, quickly followed by Ellen's smartphone, which also functioned as a flashlight. Donning our equipment, we descended into the catacombs by means of an iron ladder of questionable integrity. And what a descent it was, Gary, to think that those old passageways had remained unvisited for centuries. Or had they? Our mutual contact assured me that the only portion of the catacombs that sees any regular activity is the portion beneath the minster. But one can never be completely sure, can they? I only need mention that strange business involving the Worcester Warrens. They say nobody's been back down there since, but I have it on good authority that not all entrances have been properly concealed. But that's another matter. Ellen and I, after much toil, reached the bottom, 
and once again were met by a branch of anonymous-looking corridors and entranceways. Turning to Ellen, her face illuminated by the bluish light of my head-torch, I informed her of what I'd learned from Butterworth's riveting text, Improbable Depths. If Norman hadn't sent that my way, Gary, I'd have been abandoning the pursuit there and then. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the full extent of Butterworth's article on the York Catacombs, but I was able to ascertain from the text that the item in question would likely be found in the system's sanctum, system being another word for catacomb in this case. In terms of navigation, one is able to access the sanctum by employing a method of divination known as telekinetic compulsion. Essentially, it's the cumulative effect of combining one's senses with one's intuition, and I was comfortable enough with the idea. I've employed variations of the method many times before in determining the potential danger posed to me in certain situations. However, there was another matter that I wasn't quite so comfortable with. As had apparently been recorded at similar sites throughout the country, including Bath and Durham, to name but a few, the sanctum at the heart of the York catacombs was said to be guarded by a being or creature known as a sentinel. According to Butterworth, who quotes extensively from the John Dee translation of the Necronomicon, the form the sentry takes is largely dictated by the predispositions of the individual visiting the sanctum. How would you interpret this, Gary? Does it suggest that one of pure intent, for example, a noble pilgrim, sees in the eyes of the sentry naught but a reflection of their good? If so, and does a person such as myself, whose goal is ignoble, see precisely the opposite, a reflection of his misdeeds made flesh? Ooh, you can imagine my turmoil. What would it be that awaited me in the darkness of those interminable passageways? Such were the thoughts that swam in the fear-coloured waters of my mind, as Ellen and I prepared to move off in the direction of the sanctum. "'What is this place?' Ellen asked innocently. "'It's an unholy maze,' I remarked, somewhat distracted by the task at hand, at the centre of which stands a shrine to the Old Ones. "'The Old Ones?' she repeated, and I felt rather than heard— the understanding in her voice, as her memory of that terrible thing we faced in the Howardian Hills returned to her, what it was, and where it came from. Yes, I said, acknowledging both her question, and the dreadful thoughts that assailed her mind. They're never far from the surface, incessantly seeking a way to return. These places were built in order to worship them, positioned deep underground, to be closer to them. And it was then that I warned Ellen of that which awaited us in the shadows—the sentinel. Again, I said, I'm offering you an opportunity to leave. Turn back now. Go home. But the young lady who had once scrawled pictures of the dying looked back at me and shook her head firmly. Such were her convictions. With that— I focused my concentration on the numerous passageways before me. In my mind's eye, I saw the tunnels spiralling outwards chaotically, many of which terminated in dank stone walls. My intuition guided me, establishing an algorithm by which I might physically traverse the labyrinth. Subtle sensations, 
The flow of air, the sound of our footsteps echoing ahead of us, heightened my confidence in the route uncovered by my instincts. And like a pair of automatons, guided by telekinetic compulsion, Ellen and I entered the system proper. We threaded our way through those bleak tunnels much in the way a locomotive follows a track. We were merely passengers, led on a linear journey towards something terribly outré. We only stopped to lay line markers, each of which would prove much more reliable than telekinetic compulsion, should we be forced to retreat in haste. I was utterly taken aback by the emptiness of the tunnels. This was a system designed to discourage, disorientate. A labyrinth meant to deter would-be plunderers from reaching that which sat at its centre. It was reminiscent of the interior of the Great Pyramid of Giza, mysterious hallways betokening unimaginable treasures, secrets intangible, just out of reach. On we pressed, driven by that weird compulsion, my intuition for the nonce true. The dust beneath our feet was akin to the packed sand of a broad beach, suggestive of myriad interlopers having made a similar journey many times before, forgotten worshippers of forgotten gods, long gone from this world. Detecting a faint glow ahead of us, we laid the last line marker at our feet, and took a moment to collect ourselves. We guzzled water, checked our torches, and proceeded towards the source of light at the end of the passageway. It was the sanctum. Approaching the chamber, it was immediately apparent that our torches would not be necessary. An ethereal radiance emanated from something unseen at the centre of the large space. We crossed the threshold, and entered the sanctum, overwhelmed, I think, by the sheer magnitude of the place. Like the corridors preceding it, the lofty walls of the chamber lacked adornment. Each of the vast, inwardly sloping surfaces rose to form a dome, beneath which, at the very centre of the sanctum, was positioned a raised altar, again completely bare in appearance, save for the item that sat upon it the very thing that seemed to be emitting that curious glow. There were no other points of entry into the chamber. Ellen and I stood at its only door, gazing about us in awe at the scope of the place. It was rather like the top portion of some giant stone egg, seventy-five feet in diameter, and at least a hundred feet high at its intradorse. So impressed was I by the scale of the sanctum, that the troubling concept of the sentinel slipped my mind, albeit temporarily. The notion returned to me in a flash, as my eyes fell upon something that had, at some point while we were gawping, appeared between us and the altar. What it was we were looking at right then, I cannot say. It was a perplexing shadow, a lump of cloudy, translucent matter, lacking form. It floated some two or three feet above the ground, the thing itself being some six to seven feet in height. Hovering there menacingly, it was clear to me, and I owe my suppositions on the matter to Butterworth, that the thing was poised between us and that which it protected, waiting for us to make our move, to ascertain whether we were friend or foe. How might such a thing be determined, I wondered. I looked to Ellen. You're my aid. I stated, affirmatively. Do as I say, 
She nodded. What follows, I continued, lies with me, my actions. Are you with me? Again, she nodded. Strangely, I had yet to feel any sense of fear or trepidation. Perhaps it was due to the fact that I had some sort of understanding regarding the thing in my midst. Understanding eliminates fear, does it not? But still, I felt it was important to test my suppositions, prior to wading into a situation that neither Ellen nor I would be able to walk away from. And with walking in mind, I took a single step towards the mass. The thing, very much resembling a small, oblong thundercloud, flashed briefly, seemingly sensitive to my approach. I invited Ellen to follow a step. Doing so, the shape flashed again, but this time, as it did so, it seemed to remold itself. Limbs characteristic of legs sprouted at its base, followed by a head-shaped lump at its top. The two of us took another step, and again the mass evolved further still, sprouting rudimentary arms. After several steps in its direction, we were within ten feet or so of the thing, as its cloudy trunk adopted the suggestion of a slender torso. These transformations continued with subsequent steps, until the pair of us were standing within three or four feet of the sentinel, gazing at what now resembled a gaunt humanoid with a paucity of mortal characteristics, its bald, featureless head that of an unfinished sculpture. The translucency had passed, too, leaving a solid, figure of stone in its wake. Slowly, by some uncanny momentum, the being lowered itself to the ground, its heavy, toeless feet clinking as it touched the stony surface of the egg-shaped sanctum. We stood in silence for several moments, observing the thing cautiously. I saw something unsettlingly familiar in the ominous, inanimate form standing before me. Later, Ellen would say the same, familiar much in the way that one recognizes the outline of a friend in the dark. And that was exactly how it appeared to us, silhouetted by the glow to its rear. Still, we observed without fear or trepidation. Unperturbed by the curious figurine, I stepped around it, and moved towards the altar some five or ten feet behind it. Ellen remained before the statue, eyeballing it earnestly. Approaching the altar, I discovered that it wasn't the object itself giving off the ghostly radiance, but an inexplicable light source embedded in the altar's surface, a weird phosphorescence the likes of which I've never seen before. To tell you the truth, I'm at a loss to describe it. I noted the particulars of the item, namely, its size, colour, and shape, to be absolutely positive that it was indeed the artifact you'd sent me to retrieve. It certainly is a curiosity, Gary, and precisely as described in the old tales. As per your instructions, I slipped on the gloves and reached out to collect it. Just then, Ellen came about and met my gaze across the altar. As she did so, we heard a disturbing sound a noise akin to stone crumbling to the ground. Fearing that the sanctum was on the verge of collapse, 
I scrutinized my surroundings intently, my eyes darting back and forth. Ellen did likewise, but, as far as we could tell, the integrity of the sanctum remained unimpeded. Despite the task at hand, Ellen and I found ourselves staring at the strange stone figure in our midst. I sure as heck didn't want to, but it seemed to be in possession of some uncanny ability to draw one's eye. Forcing myself to look away, I retrieved the object from the altar. Clutching the item in my gloved hands, I braced myself for some sort of retaliatory reaction from the silent sentinel. But it remained absolutely motionless. And then I seemed to lose focus for a second, my attention returning to the object. As I held it, I was confounded by a number of baffling sensations, feelings of inevitability. Notions of destiny and fate swept through my consciousness, and in a state of uncomprehending detachment I was whisked back into the past, where I had apparently known of the object in my possession, been aware of its reputation. Large voids in my memory were momentarily filled, questions that had plagued me for decades were answered. But it was all too fleeting. I knew that the special gloves were shielding me from the item's true power, and in that moment I don't mind admitting I was incredibly thankful. And then I was aware of something else. The strange luminescence at the heart of the altar, now deprived of the object it had once housed, was beginning, very slowly, to fade. Once more Ellen and I heard that sound, that crumbling sound. "'What is that?' Ellen whispered. Our eyes met across the altar, and, owing to a set of circumstances I shall shortly relate, Ellen's question was answered, much to our mutual discontent. Peripheral vision is a curious thing, is it not, Gary? I, for one, have never trusted it. What we see there is open to interpretation. It is subjective. Our minds have the nasty habit of jumping to conclusions when we observe things out of the corners of our eyes. In this case, what I saw, what Ellen saw, or at least what we thought we saw, were the heavy, pallid limbs of the figurine beside us moving. Moreover, we thought we saw its slender neck turning, its impossibly rigid legs twisting. This movement continued— as Ellen and I gazed at one another, each of us resisting the overwhelming urge to look directly at the thing, neither of us wanting to confirm the reality of the uncertain pictures our peripheral vision was feeding us. The crumbling sounds increased, and we could see, out of the corners of our eyes, clouds of fine gravel ejected from the cumbersome joints of the sentinel's contorting extremities. It was moving with greater swiftness now, the ever-increasing rate relative to the speed in which the altar's inexplicable glow was fading. And then I yielded. I turned and looked at the thing. Immediately it ceased its progress, returning to the eerie, inert state it had formerly occupied. My companion looked at it too. Ellen, I whispered my eyes fixed upon the sentinel. I want to test a supposition. 
I instructed Ellen to look away, which she did. I, in turn, returned my gaze to the altar, and sure enough, the stone figure began to move again. It was facing us now, and in the brief few seconds our eyes were averted, it had started to shuffle towards us. Once more, I turned to look at it directly, and again it froze. Keep your eyes on it, Helen, I instructed, finally succumbing to the fear and trepidation that I'd managed to suppress up until that point. It would appear that it cannot move if you're looking at it. But the light was fading fast, so much so that we were forced to switch our head torches back on. What happens when the light goes out? Ellen had to ask. Well, I said with some hesitation, we'd better hope our torch batteries last, hadn't we? The realization dawning upon us, we withdrew our backup torches and trained them on the sentinel. Seconds later, the sanctum's inexplicable light source was entirely depleted, leaving the pair of us stranded in a stalemate situation with the motionless figure. It was with a true sense of horror that my head-torch began to flicker, and promptly went out. I quickly swapped the battery, but to no avail. Retraining my trusty torch on the sentinel, I watched it closely, refusing to break eye contact with it, maddeningly conscious of every blink. That empty face haunts me still, Gary. I imagine I'll never look at a shop mannequin the same way again. The horror intensified, as Ellen's smartphone, under what I now believe to be the draining influence of the creature in its midst, lost power. The time had come to act. Reliant on my trusty handheld torch, and Ellen's head torch, we'd have to make a run for it, praying to whatever benevolent force was listening that we'd have the good luck to outrun the nightmarish guardian, and successfully retrace our footsteps through the labyrinthine system. I certainly didn't want Ellen to suffer as a result of my actions, and I was reasonably sure that the thing would only target me, but I wasn't prepared to take the risk. She needed to get out of there first. It's time to go, Ellen, I said slowly. Off you go. Follow the markers. I'll be right behind you. Ellen, whose beating heart was audible above the deathly silence of the unholy sanctum, nodded, and took off at a brisk pace. My eyes remained fixed upon the pale sentinel as I slowly passed it and walked backwards in the direction of the threshold. I kept my torch on the thing as I backed up into the corridor, preparing for the inevitable. I'd all but forgotten about the item clutched in my left hand, but right then I realized that I had tightened my grip upon it, and somehow my sense of courage was reinvigorated, and, armed with this renewed sense of optimism, I took off into the maze, hell-bent on catching up with Ellen. "'Keep going, Ellen!' I shouted into the forbidding gloom. "'I'm right behind you!' "'Hurry, Peter!' I heard her yell, and was driven on by this confirmation of her safety. From behind came the heavy, unwieldy footfalls of the sentinel. With every step it took— Freed from the eyes of the living upon it, it grew in poise and stride, its stony limbs connecting with the earth like sledgehammers struck by giants. In taking the object from the altar, 
I had identified myself as a foe, an enemy of who or whatever that unholy sanctum had been devoted to, and the sentinel that had literally manifested itself in front of our very eyes, out of the fetid chamber air, was out to fulfil a simple task, to retrieve the stolen item, at all costs. On I ran, hounded by the ceaseless steps of the hulking guardian. Fortunately, I was flesh and blood, agile. The sentinel was tall and clumsy, and so, naturally, it had little chance of catching me, provided, of course, that I navigated the system correctly. To deviate, even once from the route marked, would mean certain death for this paranormal investigator. Picking up my pace, I rushed ahead, turning left, then right, right, then left, drawn to each and every marker like a pointer pursuing a pheasant. And it was with a tremendous sense of relief that I saw the ladder to the surface ahead of me, my friend Ellen bracing herself for a swift ascent. This would be the final test of that ancient apparatus. "'Climb, Ellen!' I yelled, and off she went at a pace I couldn't dream of matching. The fumbling, tumbling footfalls of the sinister sentinel echoed along the myriad passages behind us. But it was evident to me at that moment that the thing had abandoned its pursuit, and was returning to the sanctum, in order to answer to its incorporeal masters. I shoved the curious prize into my satchel, and followed Ellen. All the while I climbed that rusty ladder, I listened to the retreating steps of the guardian. I, the desecrator of that unholy place, had escaped its clutches. I briefly pondered the fate I might have suffered, should that bulky monstrosity have captured me. And then my thoughts returned to the object, stowed safely away in my satchel. It had played a role in our escape, I was sure of that. Finally, we reached the safety of the storage room, where we were quick to close the trapdoor, and return the stone slab to its rightful place. Not that I was particularly confident in its ability to keep anything from emerging from that dreadful maze below. I must remind you, Gary, someone or something descended via that ladder before us, perhaps a long time before us. What became of them? The rest of the story is rather uneventful. Ellen and I left the storage room, returned to the house proper, and, following a stint of almost four hours traversing the catacombs, were just in time to exit 35 Stonegate prior to its closure, at 5.30 p.m. Standing amongst the shoppers and tourists on Stonegate, Ellen and I stared at one another in stony silence. There was an air of weary resignation, as the pair of us accepted that our adventures together were only just beginning, that other and potentially stranger escapades likely awaited us in the months and years to come. We parted company at Bootham Bar, a location of great significance for the two of us, and I made for the peace and tranquillity of home. Well, Gary, I'm sure you'll understand now why I felt it necessary to tell you the whole story. I haven't slept particularly well since my time in the catacombs. There was something in the air down there that, in spite of the mask adorning my face, seeped into my being on a level hitherto unknown to me.
or, quite possibly, it has nothing to do with the air at all, but instead the object still sitting comfortably in my satchel. I'm not sure I should look at it again, Gary. I certainly won't be touching it again, gloves or no gloves. As I said, when it was in my grip and my thoughts were focused on it, I saw and heard things that now remain only as fleeting images, memory fragments, if you will. But there's one image that sticks in my mind above all others. It's an image of myself overlooking a vast precipice in some deep cavern. I know the place well, for I've dreamt of it a thousand times. Only this time I'm seeing myself from someone else's perspective. Who is watching me atop that strange peak in the cavern, I wonder? And it's that same vision that now allows me to recognize the familiar form the sinister sentinel had assumed before Ellen and me, gaunt and tall. It was me, Gary. The sentinel in stone was merely a prototype. The old ones had sensed my intentions, and had sent that abomination after me. I'm sure now that if I'd been captured, it would be I, Peter Van Melsen, down there in the dark, watching over that altar. This was all related to me in a series of fleeting images, related to me by the little black box. There was a name, too, whispered across illimitable gulfs of space and time. Murphy. The box is connected to Jason Murphy, isn't it? Where on earth is he? I feel as though I'm haunted by the man. I eagerly await your arrival, Gary. That's all for now. Peter.